going to be in Luke chapter 6 today. We're starting a new section of uh, text. It's, it's still within Luke, and it's really a continuation of what we've been doing. But he, we, we begin to see Jesus preaching a sermon, and, and we'll really take the next five weeks to work our way through it. But it, it's still connected to the set of events that, uh, that have been occurring around Jesus. So his ministry had really taken off. I tried to show you repeatedly over the last several weeks that uh, his, people were coming from all over to see Jesus. They, 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 they longed to hear him teach. They longed to see him do miracles. They longed to have their own sicknesses healed, their own demons cast out, and they, they longed to be near Jesus. And, 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 and the thing is, is that as his ministry grew, what began to happen was that the, it, it caught the attention of the religious leaders. And the, the religious leaders of the day began to question Jesus. They began to test Jesus. They began to try to catch Jesus in uh, his own teaching and tried to, to trip him up. And, and Jesus didn't take it. He didn't, he didn't bow to them. He didn't give in to their, their views. He, in fact, called them on their own sin. And that infuriated them. It made them angry. I mean, just consider yourself. If somebody tells you um, that you're wrong about the things that you believe and, and, and the things that you do don't make you holy or righteous or deserving of God's, uh, God's forgiveness and God's, God's work, then uh, you might be offended too, especially if you've been raised all your life believing this. And that's exactly what was happening with them. And, and it infuriated them to the point that they began to talk about, what do we do with Jesus? Like, how do we get rid of this problem? And that's where we were last week, because Luke chapter 6, is, Jesus is uh, in the midst of this conflict. And it tells us in, in the verses that we studied last week, 11 through 16, it tells us that he had gone up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed all night long. He endured in prayer. The text really be, breaks out for us that he just endured in it. He, he committed himself to it. He stayed up all night long praying and, and fellowshipping with his father, seeking direction for the mission for, from his father. And he comes down, and out from among his many disciples, he chooses 12 to be apostles. And in the middle of that, he begins training them. And that's where we really pick up this week. It's Luke chapter 6, verse 17 through 26 is where we're going to be studying. If you, it's on page 862 uh, in the Bibles and the chairs if you want to follow along with, in one of those. But we're going we're gonna to begin reading. We're going to see Jesus. It was really the things I just shared with you, a couple of transitional verses. We'll see Jesus' uh, ministry established, and then we'll see him teaching uh, his disciples. So just begin reading with me along in verse 17. It says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him to be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Uh, and all the crowds sought to touch him for the power came out from him and healed them all. So that's what I was just describing to you. Jesus' ministry, his his uh, reputation had, had been talked about, had been told to people all over Jerusalem, Judea. I mean, from all over Israel, people were coming to see Jesus. And not just people in Israel. It, it actually calls out people from Tyre and Sidon. They, weren't, they were not Jewish cities. These were people that were outside of the covenant. They had heard about Jesus, and they longed to see Jesus. And they all came, and they all wanted to hear him teach, and they wanted to have their sicknesses cured. They wanted their demons cast out. They, they came long distances. They, they set aside uh, 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 days of travel. They gave up wages so that they could be near Jesus. 
And it struck me this morning, even as I was preaching the first sermon, this is not in my notes, but it just, it just struck me as I thought about the, the verses that follow, how, how that challenges us immediately. Because how many of us seek Jesus out in this way? I mean, how many of us are really willing to put our lives on hold, to set aside day's wages, to give up the work that we do so that we can pursue Jesus, so that we can just get our eyes on him? And if you look at the text, it says that there was a great multitude, a great crowd of his disciples, a great multitude of crowds. I mean, there's just numbers and numbers of people that we, we're not even certain how many there are. But they came and they longed to be near Jesus. And, and it goes on to say that they just wanted to touch him. They, they came just so they could get a finger on him. Because they saw his power. They understood his power. How, how many of us really think in those terms? Kind of a challenge. It's, it's kind of a... Man, it's kind of convicting. How, how many of us? Well, the reality is, is that in this day, he began to teach and train. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't let them stay in this place where they might have been pursuing him just as a, 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 as, as a means to an end, but as the end himself. And he says to them, says in verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. I think it's probably one of the most ironic verses in all of Scripture. Blessed are you when you hate people, or or when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. You stand in good company. But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. So their fathers did to the false prophets. That's a crowd you might not want to be named among. I used to know a guy who was always telling me why he couldn't believe in, a, in, in the God of the Bible, a personal and loving God. He looked around at the world around him, and he was convinced that there was a creator. He was convinced that there was a, a God of sorts, but not the God of the Bible. He couldn't believe that there was a God who, cre- who created and loved the world or the people in it. And his primary reason, the primary reason that he gave was because of suffering. That's not uncommon. I mean, it's not, a, it, it's not an uncommon view. In fact, it's probably one of the most popular views as people give up their view of a biblical God. This is a guy who said that he had explored Christianity for some time but couldn't hold to it because of suffering. He couldn't hold to this view of a, the Christian view of God because he looked at suffering. And there's 
all kinds of suffering in the world. We all realize that. There's all kinds of pain and oppression that people deal with. There's all kinds of evil things that happen. But these aren't always the things that he pointed to. In fact, often he didn't point to the suffering that's out there. He pointed to the suffering that was in here within himself. It was kind of interesting because it was really, I think, the thing that bothered him the most. But he'd given up his... He, he said this to me a couple of times, just as clearly as I'm about to say it to you, that that he'd given up his view of the Christian God, not because there was a ton of suffering in the world, but because when he had tried to follow God, his life got difficult. Because life got hard, God must not exist. But then when he quit seeking to follow God, or quit seeking to know God, or know if there was a real God, his life got easy. And so based on his perspective, based on his view, that the God of the Bible must not exist because I didn't get what I wanted. Listen, there's a problem with that view. The problem with that view, and that problem is not God. This man, this friend of mine, this, this man I used to spend quite a bit of time around, he was valuing all the wrong things. I mean, he assumed that if he was going to follow God, that life was supposed to be easy, that life was supposed to get simple, that life was supposed to be the way he wanted it. But he was measuring that with worldly values. He was determined that his job was supposed to be simple, that he was supposed to make lots of money, that he was never supposed to deal with trouble or problem or pain. But as Jesus has spent a whole night praying, and then from his, from his many disciples calling 12 to follow him even more closely, that is not at all what he has called them to. That is not at all the message that he's preaching in front of the, the multitudes that have come from all over Jerusalem and Judea and even from Tyre and Sinai. That is not at all what this text shows us. In fact, I think what Jesus would say to that, what, what Jesus has called us to value, what he has called us to look to as, as assurance, what's at the heart of this text is that as we follow, Jesus assures us not by rewards on earth, but the promise of heaven. And he warns us not to find our hearts filled by what is fleeting. Brothers and sisters, we ourselves are often guilty of these same issues. We're ready to praise God for his glorious uh, provision and his wonderful grace when things are going our way, but we're often caught asking why when, when suddenly we don't understand. When suddenly the difficulties of following the Christ who carried a cross become real and tangible in our lives. Jesus says, in the midst of these, you should find your assurance. See, Jesus wasn't calling these men to be apostles in a cakewalk. He wasn't saying, hey, you 12, you, you come in, you step a little bit closer to me, and you come into this and enjoy the, the ease and the comfort that is in following me. He was calling them to, to step more deeply into the conflict that already existed around him. I mean, the conflict wasn't about to start. The conflict had already started. They were already trying to figure out how to rid the world of Jesus. He was al they already had hated him. They were already furious with him. And in fact, they had they, already tried to kill him when he went into his hometown. And he preached and he said, hey, I've come to preach the good news to the poor. 
It's like, hey, that's you. And they're like, no, that's not us. we got to get rid of you. They tried to throw him off a cliff. The conflict was already raging, and yet now he's saying, come in, come step closer to me. Walk a little bit closer. Step into this conflict. Follow me even more closely into the difficulty that exists with following me. You ready to sign up for that? It wasn't just these 12 that he was calling to this. It wasn't just these 12 apostles that he had named for this. It says in verse 20, he's speaking to all of his disciples. And the disciples, it says that there was a great crowd of disciples. We don't, we don't know how many there are. We don't have a clue how many there are. There, maybe there's 100, maybe there's 500, maybe there's 1,000 disciples, people who are following after Jesus. We don't know. And he's saying it all in front of a, a world who needs to hear. A world who needs to have its, its values turned upside down or, or right side up, maybe is a better way to look at it. Each and every one of them were hearing his countercultural and counterintuitive teaching on how God favors and blesses those who follow him. The thing is, is that as much as he was speaking to those people on that day and speaking in front of those people from all over Israel, he's speaking to his disciples today. These words from Luke chapter 6, as Jesus begins preaching this message, they are as applicable to you as a follower of Jesus Christ as they were to these people standing before him on that day. The ones that he laid eyes on and spoke directly to, they are just as applicable for you. And if you are here observing and not believing, if you are here and, and, and checking out Jesus and trying to figure out what this whole gospel thing's about, and, and you're just trying to get close to these people that talk about this power and this authority, and you're just trying to figure it out, if you're here just observing these words are for you. So there's a couple of different ways I want you to take this message couple of different perspectives I want you to approach this message from. If you can honestly say that you are striving after Christ, if you're honestly pursuing him, not as a means to an end, but an end in himself, if you are following Jesus, then I want you to be assured in the hope that comes in following Jesus. I want you to, I want you to gain courage and boldness and excitement for what he has for you. Because even though it may be difficult today, brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come. There is reason to celebrate. There is reason to be bubbling over with joy. There is reason to pick our heads up and smile. And I want you to walk out of here today brimming with the joy that is in Christ. But... If you're here today and you're striving to impress Christ and you're try, you're, you, you, you've, you've been all your life striving to stand in your own self-righteousness and prove to God that you belong in his presence. If you're a person who is striving to have your cake and eat it too and you want all the things the world has to offer and when you get around to it, you'll take Jesus. I want you to hear his warning. I want you to hear his warning for you. 
I want you to walk out of here a little bit afraid. And I don't say that, I don't say that simply to heap guilt on. I'm not here to try and preach some hellfire and brimstone and try and scare you into heaven. I don't think that can be done. But I want you to know the seriousness of his call and his words. I was confronted with it this week as Friday night we did secret church here and, and a couple of quotes stuck out to me. And I want to share them with you this morning. This is, this is why we come at this, not just seeking to pump up Christians, but, but warn those who aren't yet believers, warn those who are striving to stand in their own self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. There is an urgency to this. Thomas Watson wrote, Thus it is in hell. They would die, but they cannot. The wicked shall always be dying, but never be dead. The smoke of the furnace ascends forever and ever. Oh, who can endure thus to be ever upon the rock? This word ever breaks the heart. Jonathan Edwards wrote, When you look forward, you shall see a long forever. A boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul, and you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions and millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance, and then you will have so done when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will, not, you will know that this is but a point to what remains. The hope of the believer is, is that, the, that, that we step into creation and for 10,000 years, as long as we've been there, we'll know that there's more to come. There's more joy and more fulfillment and more, and, and more, more, more laughter and more celebration to come. But for those who die apart from Christ, hear his warning. Years and years and years of wrestling and conflict and death that doesn't kill. And you'll find yourself in a moment that you'll know that this is just a point of what remains. Brothers and sisters, not only should we walk out of here assured of our salvation in Christ, but we should walk out of here complaining, or, 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 or no, I'm sorry, not complaining, proclaiming this message to a world who needs to hear this warning. There is an eternal urgency to this. So if you're here and you believe, celebrate. Be assured and go and tell. But if you are here and you are trying to prove yourself or just trying to nonchalantly step into it, try to have your cake and eat it too, be warned. This is how he warns us. This is how he assures us. He gives us beatitudes and, and, and warnings, or, or blessings and warnings. And traditionally, these, this, this passage, verses 20 through 26, or 20 through 21, or 23, I'm sorry, I can't see straight, 20 through 23, traditionally are called beatitudes. 
The 24 through 26 are, are woes. Beatitudes are blessings. It's God, as Jesus, saying, hey, this is good for you. And the word is translated blessed. But, but here's the problem with the word blessed. We all think that blessed means something else. We, we all think that, hey, my car didn't die on me. I'm blessed. Things worked out the way I want. I'm blessed. We, we equate it to being happy. We equate it to the circumstances we experience. And we're missing the point of the word blessed. And so I thought we'd just take a second and just, just learn from the, from the Scripture. What does it mean? Well, what, is he, what is he saying? It's not simply being happy. Well, the complete word study dictionary defines it this way and, and, and builds it out of a biblical perspective. The Greek word makarios means blessed, possessing the favor of God. It's one who has received his Grace, not because you deserve it, that's not grace. Not because you earned it, that's not grace. Not because he's, he's, he's obligated to give it, that's not grace. It's possessing the favor of God as a gift. The state of being marked by fullness from God. To be Macarios, blessed, is equivalent to having God's kingdom within one's heart. The, the power and the presence and the authority of God in your soul. The one who is in the world, yet independent of the world. His satisfaction comes from God and not from favorable circumstances. This is the idea behind being blessed. You are blessed not because your car didn't break down, not because your kids didn't disappoint you, not because your job promoted you. You are blessed because God has graced you. That is what blessing is. And it's not something you earn. It's not something he gives you because he's obligated to give it to you. He gives it to you because he is a good, good father. Be blessed, he says. But in Luke, this is different than Matthew's version of this passage. Luke gives us also woes. Woe to you. Watch out. Curse be upon you. This, this is difficult. But we have to get that. You, you need to understand this. This is not a threat. He's not threatening people. He's not simply, simply uh, 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 calling them out and, and not, 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 uh, not being meaningfully uh, compassionate about it. He's not just simply trying to threaten a, a person. It's not like a, a, a parent who threatens a child with punishment if he or she doesn't act properly. He's warning them that the indicators of their life and the things that they value are leading to destruction. He's warning them, giving them warning ahead of time, giving them understanding before they get there. He's trying to stop them before they run headlong off a cliff. Listen, he says. And it's really striking to me that, that, that Luke tells us that he's speaking specifically to his disciples. You might think, well, Seth, this is a church. Why would you come and preach? Why, just preach the Beatitudes. That's all we need to hear because we're a church. Yeah, but Jesus preached both to his disciples. Well, why would he do that? Because even in the 12 we see the example of who comprises his disciples. Eleven who history tells us went on to follow Christ and actually were martyred for their faith, who believed it so fully that they gave their lives up for it. But one who in this text, in Luke chapter 6, 
Verse 16 is identified as the traitor. The one who would ultimately work miracles in Jesus' name. The one who would sit and hear him speak with his own ears. The one who was sent out with the other twelve to cast out demons. The one who was trusted to watch over the money and, and, and the treasury of the, of the twelve. The, the one who seemingly had it all together. But would turn and deny his Savior. Not just deny him, but rebel against him. Work against him. See, the reality is, is that we all need to hear both. If you're a believer, there's no reason to fear. But if you're sitting in this room and you're a Judas, hear the warning and turn from your sin and follow Christ. So as we work through these things, we'll see, you'll see that they are contrasting ideas. There's four of each, four blessings, four woes. And the blessings are assurance for believers, and and the woes are warning for those who do not believe or those that might be being deceived. He warns us, he assures us in in, in poverty, and he warns us of self-sufficiency. You see it, he says, blessed are are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. We need to be careful here. This is not automatically, we shouldn't automatically take this as Jesus saying it's more righteous to have less or more righteous or or, or less righteous to have more. We, We shouldn't assign righteousness and God's approval on a person based on their financial standing. The reality is, is that, the, that many of the saints of old, many of those who have gone before the heroes of our faith were wealthy people. Solomon was one of the richest of all people. David was one of the richest of all people. He was a king for crying out loud. Job was extremely wealthy. But even David, even David in Psalm 40.17 says, As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. Oh my God. Who would think that a man that was to be king would be considered or even think of himself as poor and needy? The reality is, I think that this refers more to a spiritual poverty. I think Matthew, in his version of this beatitude, gives us a qualification that helps us understand the heart and the intent of Jesus' words. Matthew writes, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. It speaks to a humility versus self-sufficiency. It speaks to, it speaks to a, a, a willingness to understand that, that we are incapable of measuring up to God's standards. It's willingness to, com, to, to confess the fact that we are sinners. It's a, a willingness to understand that God does not owe us anything. And we fear God, and yet when we look up in fear, we find His mercy. If you remember back when... when um, Mary was singing her song as she, was, uh, as she conceived Jesus, as she was singing the Magnificat. That's what she said. His mercy is for those who fear him. 
then there's those who are self-sufficient, who, who have everything they want in this life, and they pray, God, I'm a good enough person. God will be good to me because look at how good I am. I have everything I need. How could God not give me what I think I deserve? I think the example that probably most clearly demonstrates this is a parable. It's from Luke. We'll get to it in time. But for now, I'll just summarize. The idea is that this, this Pharisee, this parable goes, that this Pharisee is praying out loud in front of all of these people. He's praying to God and he's saying, I am so glad that I'm not like these sinners. I'm so glad that I'm not like the, the, those who are evil, those who are thieves, those who are adulterers. I am so glad I'm not even like this tax collector. I pray I fast, I give a tenth of all I have. Oh God, I'm so glad I've earned a standing before you. That's the idea, that's the intent. And the parable turns into the tax collector that the Pharisee referred to who couldn't even look up. He could only beat his chest. God, have mercy on me. Sinner. You see, this is the attitude that Jesus is saying is blessed. This is the attitude that grace flows into and out of and all over. That those who are self sufficient, who stand proving themselves before God, be warned. He assures us in poverty, poverty of spirit, and, and, and warns us again. Uh, of self-sufficiency, of af- acting as if we can do it ourselves, He assures us in hunger and warns us of comfort. Again, Jesus sets the view of, uh, of His kingdom against the view of the world. I mean, just consider this for a moment. This is counterculture, counterintuitive. People measure their success. They measure their blessing on the things that they have. And yet He's saying that's not it at all. In fact, you're blessed if you're hungry. And you're blessed if you're, if you're wanting. You're blessed if you recognize what you're lacking compared to those who live in comfort, who are fully satisfied in the things of this world. Again, this draws out the same idea. I think we have to be careful not to go too physical, not that we want to over-spiritualize it, not that we want to miss the spirit or the physical component. But Matthew, again, he helps us understand this a little more fully when he, when he shows us that this is, has much spiritual implication as it does physical. Blessed are you who hunger for righteousness, he says. Who, who give your life for the pursuit of living as God has called you to and living in the righteousness that has been graced upon you. I mean, just consider this for a moment. Take, take stock of your life. Take inventory of who you are and how you spend your time. You spend your money and you spend your talents, those gifts and abilities he's given you. Do, do they indicate that you are hungry for righteousness? Do they indicate that righteousness is more important to you than the pursuit of worldly things? Brothers and sisters, through Christ, we don't, we don't find our hope in fat wallets or big bank accounts. That, that is not the promise we have been given. 
That is not the blessing that He has bestowed upon us. Rather, in God and by God and through Christ, we are made righteous. We will be satisfied. The reality is, is that following Jesus leads us away from building a kingdom of, our, of wealth to, to using whatever wealth we have been given to build His kingdom, to live as He's called us to. Don't be deceived. This this is not going to be easy. This is not going to be something that's simple just because he's saying it's blessed. It's not going to be something that, 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 that doesn't come at a cost. There will be days you're going to wake up that you can't help but question, whether am I doing the right thing? There's going to be days that you're going to wake up and, and be tempted to just give up and take the easy way out. This is just too difficult. I can't take it anymore. My friend is a good example of that. It's in those days you need to remember this blessing. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Are you hungry in this moment? Are you you striving and feeling needy and feeling overlooked? Are you feeling empty? Blessed are you who are hungry now. For you shall be satisfied. Christ, in Christ, what is to come is far more valuable than what you can have here and now. What are you chasing after? When we give ourselves to the purpose he's left us here to accomplish and enjoy the blessing of his presence now and into eternity, or we can listen, we can, we can live out the, the warning that he has given and we can give ourselves to the comfort and satisfaction here and now and give up all that is to come. Brothers and sisters, please. Those who are just observing, please hear his warning. Live in his blessedness. He assures us in sorrow and warns us of happiness. I don't want you to think that that means we need to all walk around with frowns on our face and you can't ever smile or laugh. It's not the intent of this passage. But you see it. He says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Brothers and sisters, happiness has taken a place in our lives. It has become the central pursuit of which we give ourselves. I mean, it's written into the founding documents of our nation, and we love to talk about them. And and while there's much to agree, as the the framers wrote the Declaration of Independence, while there's much to agree with, there's there's a misunderstanding of application. They write, we hold these truths to be self-evident. You recognize these words. That all men are created equal. Absolutely, we are. And every one of us that has ever been born has fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us has turned aside. No one seeks God, not even one. From our throats come death. That's Romans chapter 3. We are created equally sinful. Every last one of us, even the most holy and righteous in this room, we are all sinners. We are created equal. And we are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, I, I agree with that to a point. But we only have that right because of God's grace. 
You know what we really deserve? Condemnation. Death. Being cast out. Being sent away from his presence. Pursuit of happiness. Yes, in Christ. Joy in Christ. Freedom in Christ. Life and liberty in Christ. But we have mis- we've misplaced it. We've, we've lost sight of the God who gave us these things and began to worship the God who promises us these things. The, the little G God of this world that promises us things. Oh, if you just have the right circumstances, if you have the right money, if you have the right stuff, if you have the right affirmation from people, if they'll just tell you that what you're doing is okay, you'll be happy. That is a lie. That is a lie from the devil. Listen, don't miss the point. God longs for you to be happy. He longs for his children to be filled with joy. But in order for us to be happy, we must be made holy. And that process results in much sorrow. Paul was making reference to this in his second letter to the church in Corinth when he wrote, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Easy circumstances? Simple life? No, our outer self is wasting away. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal Weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, in Christ we will be made truly happy when we have been made Holy and repeatedly, the scripture shows us that this is not a simple and easy process. It is a circumcision of the flesh, it is a circumcision of your heart. It is a killing of an old man and bringing life to a new man. He is not just, he is not just simply making you feel good, he is making you new. This is the idea that James talks about it in, in, as he says, rejoice in your trials because they make you complete and lacking in nothing. Paul wrote to the church in Romans to, to, to take joy in our trials and our difficulties because they sanctify us. The writer of Hebrews said to face our trials as if they were disciplined from a loving father. None of those are promises for ease and comfort and happiness. But they are promises to be made holy and ultimately happy. To ultimately be filled with joy because His holiness is being established within us. We can try to go the easy route. We can try to take the easy path. But hear the warning. In the end, we will be weeping. Or we can follow Christ. And we can face whatever difficulties come our way. Picking up our cross to follow him. Knowing full well that there is a day coming in which our wildest dreams will be fulfilled. Our tears will be wiped away and our sorrow will be swallowed up. And we will stand in the presence of our creator who chose to be our savior. Forever and ever. And 
when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. That is the promise. He assures us in persecution and warns us of popularity. As I think it may be one of the most important reminders for us today in a world where our words can easily be called out by the masses as bigoted and narrow-minded when we're simply speaking what the Scripture says. I don't want you to miss this point as I get into it. I don't want you to think that this is a blanket statement or permission for us to go around being a jerk. Uh, This is not what I'm saying at all. I don't think that's what Jesus' intention is at all. In fact, he gives us a caveat. He says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. If you're being a jerk and people are being rude to you and being mean to you, you deserve it. But if you're being gracious and speaking truth as God has called us to, take joy in that day. Leap for joy in that day. Matthew Henry, writing in his commentary on this passage, wrote these words. He said it better than I could, so I just thought I'd read it to you. You must expect all base treatment that a spiteful world can give you for Christ's sake. Because you serve him and his interests, you must expect that wicked men will hate you because of your doctrine and life convict and condemn them. Your doctrine and life convict and condemn them. And those that have church power in their hands. So hear this. This is the evil people. Your life and doctrine convict them so they're going to hate you. And those that have church power, this other side. Those that have church power in their hands will separate you. Will force you to separate yourselves and then excommunicate you for doing so. And and lay you under the most ignominious censures. They will pronounce anathemas against you as scandalous and incorrigible offenders. They will do this with all possible gravity and solemnity and pomp and pageantry pageantry of appeals to heaven to make the world believe and almost you yourselves too that that it is ratified in heaven. Thus they will endeavor to make you odious to others and a terror to yourselves. And they that have this power will not fail to show And they that have not this power will not fail to show their malice. So you have those who are evil, those who have church power, those who are church leaders and living in self-righteousness. This is exactly what they did to Jesus. This is what we saw happen in the the Protestant Reformation. And it happens all the time as church people stand around in their own self-righteousness and condemn those who are seeking to live in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. And then one other side, those who do not have this power will not fail to show malice to the utmost of their power, for they will reproach you, will charge you with the blackest crimes which you are perfectly innocent of, will fasten upon you the blackest characters which you do not deserve. They will cast out your name as evil, your name as Christians, as apostles. They will do all they can to render these names odious. Such usage seems hard, but blessed are you. When you are so used. Blessed are you when God uses you in this way. That you would be cast out. That you would be reviled. That you would be sent away. That you would be condemned. Blessed are you when you are used this way. It is so far from depriving you of your happiness. That it will greatly add to it. It is an honor to you as it is 
to a brave hero to be employed in wars in the service of his prince. And therefore rejoice you in that day and leap for joy. Do not only bear it, but triumph in it. Listen, in Christ, persecution is reason to celebrate, not hide, nor lose heart. The truth is this. You should feel more concerned if sinful people are praising you for, your mess, for the message that you preach than if they are sending you away. If your message is palatable, palatable to a lost world and there is no offense in your gospel message, you are likely preaching a false gospel and likely believing that false gospel is true. Be warned. If you find yourself at home among non-believers and they welcome you with open arms and they never want to, they, they never feel convicted by your life, they never hear the offense of the gospel from your mouth, and you see everything eye to eye with them and they are happy to have you in their presence and there's never a moment where they are uncomfortable around you, you may have reason to be concerned. Again, this is not a, this is not a blanket statement, a blanket uh, allowance for you to go and just be crass and cruel and crude and mean to people. Peter called the church, if you remember when we went through 1 Peter chapter 2, he called the church to live such honorable lives among the Gentiles that they would, they would see their good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In spite of being called evil, they would see their good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our lives should be honorable. They should be righteous. They should be lived in a a means of holiness. They should be proclaiming the gospel for us so that when we speak with our mouths, the words ring true. That's going to come at a cost. The idea is not that we don't have a good reputation. Peter, you know, that's that's, that's what Peter's going for. That's what he's longing for us. But if we are faced with a choice of offending God and offending people, if we are faced with a choice with our reputation before God and before man, brothers and sisters, we have no choice. One is sin and one is honor, honorable. One is right and good and one is sinful. And it's a selfish act and not love for those who need to be warned. For those who undergo persecution now, this is the promise. Having been rejected here, you will not be rejected then. Just consider this. There will be a moment when you stand before the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, the one who said, let there be light and the light shone, the one who sent his son to die in your place for your sin, the, 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 the Savior who came and put on flesh and dwelt among us, he will stand before you and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter your master's rest. That's the promise. That's the hope. That's the thing we have to look forward to. That's reason to celebrate. Don't miss the warning. Because for those who would give their pursuit to some other path, who who would follow some other Savior, who would devote themselves to some other God, 
when you look at him and say, look, I, I'm so good, you've got to just let me in. It's going to cast you into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the death never ends, the dead never die. And that's something to be taken lightly. There's eternal reality, eternal urgency. Hear his warning. Walk in his assurance. And as we follow, Jesus assures us not by rewards on earth, but the promise of heaven. And he warns us not to find our hearts filled by what is fleeting. So please hear his call. Follow him. Pursue him. And know this, the best is yet to come. Reject him. Turn from him. Deny him. And this is as good as it gets. We can struggle to have the life we want now. Or we can follow our Savior into suffering and be given the life he has won for us. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Don't be deceived. There is no easy path. Every road on this earth is a difficult road. For some, this is as bad as it ever gets. The best is yet to come. But for those who reject our Christ, reject his message, and reject his work, this is as good as it ever gets. Please, don't walk away from this lightly. Please, don't deny this opportunity to those you know And you say you love. Go and tell them of what Christ has done and how he blesses those who follow him. Let's pray. Father, of course we know of our lacking. Come to messages like this and we sense the conviction in our heart, the the mixed motivations, the struggles we have within ourselves, The ways that we the ways that we try to pursue you while pursuing everything else. Would you encourage us with your word? Would you show us a position of blessedness? Would you help us to hang on to to the things ahead, to the things that are coming? Would you help us to look forward to them? Would you help us to cling to your promises so that we can endure in this day? And not just endure in it, not just deal with it, but triumph in it. Rejoice in it. Leap for joy in it. Father, for those who might be standing in the midst of religious attitudes, religious platitudes who are standing based on some tradition that they follow who are here simply thinking that they'll be good enough and and surely you'll take them on that day who are striving to have their cake and eat it too who want the best of both worlds but don't want to give up either would you help them hear your warning Would you call them to repentance? Would you revive their soul? Would you wake them up that they might turn in repentance and follow our Savior? 
I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.